You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. The city of Aurora mm-hmm. to do something uh-huh. fun uh-huh. and to put the city on the map. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. Oh, well, <laughs> work is hard. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a show looking at movies and a franchise one film at a time. This time we're finishing our look at the Wayne's World duology with Wayne's World 2. It came out in 93, directed by Steven Sergic, uh, with a screenplay by Mike Myers, Bonnie Turner, and Terry Turner. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. Gordon Street. Ah, yes, Gordon Street. I once knew a girl who lived on Gordon Street a long time ago, when I was a young man. Not a day passes, I don't think of her and that promise that I made, which I will always keep that one perfect day. On Gordon Street. And Alex. Now I had to get 1,000 brown M&Ms to fill a brandy glass or else Ozzy wouldn't go on stage. <laughs> yeah, I have to go with me to California. That's where all the big guys get their records made. You don't want to do this Wayne stock here. <laughs> I get it. You want me to say what? As if I was a sphincter. <laughs> like I don't get it. You gotta let me backstage. My girlfriend's in there. Hey, guy, lots of guys' girlfriends are back there, right? <laughs> mm, right, yeah, we're talking about Wayne's World 2. This is a movie... So, I mean, this came out in 93, just one year after the first one. They really rushed this. You have no idea how much they rushed this. Mm. Because it was a troubled <laughs> production. So I, I, I stumbled across it that apparently... The original script that Mike Myers wrote was inspired by the British comedy Passport to Pimlico, where Wayne and in it, Wayne and Garth find some old document with some buried treasure and like basically like indicating that like Aurora, Illinois or someplace nearby isn't technically part of the United States. So they end up seceding from the United States and running their own tiny nation. Um <laughs> All the turn and they started making it. Uh, started building to, sets. Yeah, and, and, and uh, like and, one of those old like Bob Hope comedies. Like it, it's a similar thing in in the British version, Passport to Pimlico. They find some people find a buried treasure in an old treaty, which indicates that the small countryside town of Pimlico is part of the owes its fealty to the House of Burgundy and not the House of Windsor. So technically it's not part of the British Empire. So they stop imposing wartime rationing and like it becomes this weird party place. Um, But yeah, and apparently so it was so heavily based on that that the studio would have legally had to have bought the rights to the original to the original story. Um, And as, as as the story goes, they immediately started uh, tearing down sets and the CEO or not CEO one she wasn't the CEO at the time, but a uh, studio executive Sherry Lansing supposedly had threatened to destroy sue Michael Myers into oblivion and destroy his career unless he could produce a script that wasn't based on anything. So this wow. the script that we got was hastily like written over a few days by Mike Myers, Bonnie Turner, and Terry Turner. And you might remember them, those two as the co-creators of Third Rock from the Sun and that 70s show. And, and, oh, they also had, uh, and the Turners also had screenplay credits on the first Wayne's World. So, uh, I guess if that... you were going to make it so based on Passport to Pimlico, you might as well just make Passport to Pimlico and not Wayne's World 2. But <laughs> that would have been funny to see how that would all come out. I think that would have been a more interesting story. I mean, this the sequel strikes me as, as a bit lazy. I, you know, watched the original on videotape a lot as a kid. Uh, the second one came out in the middle when I was moving from Centerville, Virginia, down to Atlanta, Georgia. So um, I, I do have very vivid memories of, of seeing a trailer for Wayne's World 2, perhaps before Adam's Family or Hook, in which mm. they do kind of the pubes joke. 
and I didn't oh, okay. understand what pubes were. I was like in, um, but a child, I, you know, maybe in the uh, third or fourth grade, fourth grade probably or something like that. Yeah, my brother had to explain that one to me. I bet that was a fun conversation. <laughs> they, they, I I was well there. aware of the context <laughs> behind that joke, for you see, at the time I was a man, <laughs> medically also, speaking. Also, while it's discussing puberty, um, that's <laughs> like one thing I goodness. think. <laughs> In green pea. Um, that's a, it's a, it's funny because like in my memory, like you said, I've seen, you know, Wayne's World like a jillion times growing up. And then so Wayne's World 2, you know, you're like going crazy waiting for it. And, um, you know, I wanted it to be as good as I remember it when I was a kid. And there's a lot of great stuff going on. There's a lot of great bits of business. But um, you can tell the, the heart isn't as there as it was. And it uh-huh. does feel it, a little rushed. It's, I, I like there's a bit more surrealism. We'll get into that. Um I mean, not only was there their trouble with the script, also Mike Myers, uh, with uh, doing some more research with the original Rain's World, Mike Myers wanted final cut, even though he wasn't the director, and <laughs> and Penelope Spheris, the director of the first one, had a cut, and her cut tested better than his, and uh, yeah, and Mike Myers pissed things off, or, or you know, was so pissed off that he basically cock blocked her from directing Wayne's World too. So wow. Instead, as the director, we have Steven Sergic, who, uh, among other things, directed a lot of episodes of Kids in the Hall, which was also produced by Lauren Michaels. Okay. Uh, so uh, mainly a television director. Uh, I, I think, you know, the, the directing in this, it's, uh, it has some fun with the, the trippiness of kind of the shots. And I think it's, it's directed well, but like a lot of comedy sequels, it repeats a lot of the same jokes. I mean, a lot of we've talked about this before, uh, guys, but a lot of comedy sequels don't work. Well, right. Yeah. Although I would say this works better than most. Some, something that Im- impressed me re-watching it is that they don't try to lean on too many gags that like worked in the first one. This movie exists in a world where people are familiar with all of Wayne and Garth's shtick from the first film. There are multiple instances where they try to do the exact same joke only to be foiled by another character knowing exactly how that joke works. Like, like Alex with your whole, like as Fichtner says, what they try to do that to Christopher Walken. He's like, Oh, I get it. Yeah. You want me to say what, don't you You want me to look like an asshole? And, and of course, which leads to their sort of humiliating feet where they're backing out. Oh, Oh, you smart. You big. Yes. First guy didn't get it. You get it. Okay. We go. Right. Like they literally say, like, okay, we're you're big, we're the little people. We're gonna. Sorry, my cat's being a jerk. He's like, we're the little people. We're gonna back away now. <laughs> and it happens. Uh, some variation of that happens multiple times, which I really do appreciate. Although I kind of wish they did lean. I I, I kind of wish they did lean more about that on them being like local celebrities. I would love it if everyone they interacted with knew exactly who they were. So, I do so love the uh, backstage pass moment, though, where uh, they're like, we got some money. We got dropped off at the parking ride. <laughs> oh, yeah. With with uh, Bob Odenkirk is one of the nerds they get stuck with backstage at Aerosmith. Which is something I totally didn't pick up on until this time around. Yeah. Now, did uh, Bob Odenkirk, was he a writer for SNL? Yeah, he was a writer okay. on SNL uh, around the same time Mike Myers was there. He made a handful of on-camera appearances. It was around the same time that Conan O'Brien uh, I think they both started on the show at about the same time, but Conan O'Brien mm-hmm. left early. Right. Because mm-hmm. um, he got the Simpsons gig. Yeah. Things that made him fly out to California. Uh, and with um, this film, you know, it came out in 93. The first one was in 92. I've, I'm always reminded of a, whenever sequels come out like this, of a story from uh, Jackie Chan's book, I Am Jackie Chan. And he says, if a sequel comes out only one or two years after the original, it's NG, meaning no good. Yeah. <laughs> and he felt he needed time for it to breathe. And uh, I think he pretty much followed that in his career when he did sequels. It might have been maybe two or three years between police stories or, or um, Project, Project A. a yeah. And Project B. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, given that, you know, this movie, Wayne's World 2, I think Wayne's World... Well, not flash in the pan when you do a sequel so soon it just did not do as well as the original still as profitable but uh oh, yeah. where do you think it was in domestic box office domestic meaning u.s and canada for 17th 17th nope i'm gonna say nine you're talking like 17th in the box office right domestic yeah yeah i'm gonna say nine that's gonna be my Oh, uh, so domestically, uh, Wayne's World 2 made only $36.8 million. 
Placing it at 41. Below it at 42. Alive, the movie about the crash plane and cannibalism, I believe. Mm. Above it at 40, uh, something that's become kind of a gangster movie classic from De Palma, Carlito's Way. Oh, okay. So, no shame in losing to De Palma. Oh, and uh, the number one movie of 93 domestically was Jurassic Park. Of course. Ah, which, which ate yeah, the that, lunch. Uh, Windrolled 2, I don't think it helped the box office that it came out during the holiday season. Yeah, that's weird. It's definitely not what you think of for uh um, associate comedies like in the summer. Yeah, definitely, like, especially light, right. silly rock and roll movies, you know, like this. Like Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh and also with the show, Garth got more input into the script, even though he doesn't have a writing credit, so he has a bit of a beefed up role. His kind of romance <laughs> fatal attraction kind of subplot. I love that. I love that subplot where, like, you know, he gets seduced, he gets laid, he undergoes that personal transformation, only to find out that Honey Hornet, the woman he's been sleeping with, is just manipulating him, trying to get him to kill her husband. And I love the way that subplot ends. It ends with him realizing he doesn't want to kill anybody, so he just leaves the gun on her porch, leaves, and never comes back. (laughs) Just the way he handles the gun is perfect, too. He's like, ooh. (laughs) And just... It's like take take me, take me, Garth. Take you where I'm out of gas and you need a jacket. And walking kind of funny. Yeah, it's he. He is almost like uh, you know, like a literal viewpoint of the world. It's just really funny. It's always fun to see more of Garth. And um, but and at the beginning we see that. It does fill in on some exposition, and I do like that it remembers what happened in the first film and is a follow-up uh, narratively. Garth and Wayne are living now not in uh, a basement, but they're, they have their own studio loft where they film the show. In an abandoned doll factory, and like yep. they yeah. keep finding ways to work various doll parts into the movie. Like when he's playing hockey, he's got the head doll head on his um, Ugh, goalie stick. Creepy. The doll head <laughs> that so... kind of looks like Garth. Yeah, and I love that he um, when he talks about Kim Basinger, he's like, "I am no, I am now no longer a stranger to the touch of a woman." <laughs> he goes yeah. out in like the Hugh Hefner bathrobe, smoking a pipe. Yeah, it. And um, in, his hair's all combed down. Yeah, <laughs> like such a melting. Right, I'm not. I don't think I'm telling tales out of school here, but in in college, there was a, a a girl that was a a friend of ours that liked to let's say deflower the nerds, and um. <laughs> Afterwards, certain guys would walk with a certain pep in their step, and I would be always think of this Wayne's World 2 scene. <laughs> I also love it because it's like it totally is like it's concurrent or like reminds you of like all those like steamy neo noirs, like you know, Body Heat and Fatal Attraction and mm-hmm. DOL, you know, the getaway and all those steamy blonde bombshell femme fatale movies, you know, and then like put Garth in one of those, and what are you going to have, you know, something, you know, a freaking train wreck. <laughs> It's so great. In a weird way, that could be its own movie, but I, I think it has just the right amount of space in this film. Right. And and later on, you get that, that subplot kind of goes on where there's a, a girl that, that works at a... That, that's a fan of the show, I think, and she looks and dresses a lot like Garth, which is a good gag that so it feels like maybe scenes were cut out for her or something because it seems like should have been in there more. Yeah, um, she has interesting... It's um, Her name... Is uh, Olivia Diabo? I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that, but um, she got a lot of interesting credits. She was in Conan the Destroyer, the most recent Star Wars film. Um, yeah, I, at first I, I thought she was a different actress, and then I looked her up and I was like, nope. <laughs> but she's kind of hilarious. Yeah, I always thought that was Maria Bamford. Yeah, yeah, I think that's who I was thinking of, right? Uh, yeah, I could see that kind of the short with the kind of crazy eyes. Um... So with the Wayne's World, a lot of this plot is like spoofing Field of Dreams in the doors. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that Wayne, a uh, running theme is, is Wayne's dreams of a naked Indian in the desert leads them to Jim Morrison. And he says, uh, you know, you're going to start a, a music festival called Wayne Stock, and if you build it, they will come. No, if you book them, they will come. <laughs> yeah, Excuse me. book them, they will come, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's not the strongest hook to hang a plot on, but it it gets the job done. I, I, you could have a lot worse of a plot. 
Well, I think it's kind of funny because, like, I don't know, my 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 rock music, metal music trivia is is I think decent enough. And I always kind of associate the Doors a little more like groovy, jammy, hippie kind of culture. Whereas, like, I would think that like he would meet like I don't know, like like uh, John Bonham or something like that, or like someone more like a, a little more edge to it, you know, not like Jim Morrison, you know, nothing to nothing wrong with having Jim Morrison, but well, I mean, Wayne clearly knows his rock music. He knows how to play True. the guitar and like, and you know, we even get that scene where, where Cassandra is showing him all the old vinyls and he can identify every group like on the oh, vinyls. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure he would know quite a bit about, about Jim Morrison, but the thing actually, I want, I wanted to, to talk about that, that vinyl thing that that's probably the one thing that really dates the movie where Cassandra's like, you know, they don't make vinyl anymore. Uh, Sharp says my album will never come out on vinyl and you know, Hey, give it 20 years. Oh yeah. Everything you've ever done will be reissued on vinyl. Everything old is new again. (laughs) But I mean, at at the, at the time when this came out in 93, that was absolutely true. Oh yeah. You you still had cassette tapes, but but CD was kind of the big format CD. They, they charged, way too high prices in my opinion for albums that oh, yeah, and often they came didn't giant boxes cardboard slots too which are so strange oh yeah when they first came out and like they uh... oh well i know why that happened oh mm. uh, it had to do with it had to do with record store infrastructure so every shop that sold music was set up for cassettes 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 and records <laughs> i've yes. invented the cassette uh <laughs> Contact me if you want that format. Um, and <laughs> so when CDs came out, uh, if you displayed a C, it was taking up real estate meant for records. But if you put a CD in a record stand, it would just fall into the record stand and oh, would get completely okay. lost behind the flap that held up the mm. record. So they came out in those tall boxes so that the CD would stick over that flap. And oh. those boxes didn't go away until record stores started updating their shelving to have shelves that would better display C- just CDs on their own. Yeah, or they'd have the plastic little lock box around it, which is like the same size. It just was a little yeah. more eco-friendly. I always thought that was just a curve shoplifting, but that makes a lot more sense. So, uh, Thrasher, what was your first CD? I okay, my first my first CD. It was actually it was it was a twofer because I bought them both at the same time. Uh, it was two. It was two film soundtracks. One was the film soundtrack for Akira, and the other was the film soundtrack for Tank Girl. Nice, nice. What about you, Alex? Um, one of the first CDs I ever bought was um, Omega Sessions by Bad Brains. I got a thirty dollars gift card for my birthday, so I think I got that and um, like this like punk compilation from Hopeless Records, which is pretty cool. But uh, my first you buy bet CDs was at the time. What's that? Where would you buy CDs at the time? There was a record store in my hometown that was pretty awesome, and I, there oh, was also a Strawberries, yeah. Um, mine was also a film soundtrack, uh, Beverly Hills Cop. My dad Ooh, oh, refused nice. to buy us a CD player. It was like 90. We had moved to Georgia, like I said, so what we in the map here. 93, we were in our, our house, two big two-story house in Marietta, Georgia. Yeah, just north of Atlanta, and um, we still had cassette decks. My dad was saying, "I'm not going to buy a CD until you can burn CDs, and then I'll I'll, I'll make copies of my records uh, on the CDs." <laughs> well, now it's 2020; he still hasn't done that. But right. we, um, we we helped out a friend of the family that helped us move in, so as a gift, he got us a uh, CD player for the sound cool setup. That yeah, that was actually how we made the the jump to CDs as well. Our aunt. And our, our family members gave us a CD player for Christmas, and they gave for our first two CDs were Billy Cobham and Tracy Chapman, <laughs> first CDs of the Miller household. I'm starting to get the sense that we don't want to talk about this movie. I'll, I'll get back to it, but I, I will add one more CD story: is uh, my dad got a Chevrolet Camaro, and it came with a Bose CD player, and my dad paid extra to have that switched for a cassette deck because oh, wow. he was so anti CD at the time. Oh, Bose made good stuff too. They um, still do. I don't think they're worth the price, but right. Um, funny thing, one of the first cassettes I ever had was Aerosmith, who is featured prominently in Wayne's World too. That's, yeah, that's I'm my. I'm more of an Alice Cooper guy. It seems like the music in this is a bit softer compared. to... Yeah, the... I was saying that too. I, I was like, um, like Aerosmith compared to Alice Cooper and what a balls out performance that he puts in the first movie. Mm-hmm. Aerosmith does seem a little bit more tame, but they do totally still rock. Um. But yeah, it just seems more like 
Like, it doesn't have the same, like, edge, you know? Like, uh, it's like they're a little too cool, you know? And they're like, we're not worthy. And he's like, you're worthy, you're worthy, get up, you know? And it's cool that he's, like, down to earth, you know? It's just, uh, yeah. After, it's, uh, you know, big shoes to fill, you know? And, and there's a scene similar to the first one where Alice, they go backstage and see Alice Cooper, and he gives, like, a big speech about, you know, <laughs> trivia. The history of Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah. Milwaukee. Milwaukee. <laughs> And it, it's funny, but it's kind of the same joke. I mean, it's stuff like that that kind of gets on my nerves a bit with this uh, right. movie. Well, like, it would have been funny if, like, you know, they were, like, thought that, or if they thought they were going to do the same, similar thing where, like, like they'd go into the, all this, like, historical trivia, but actually they do what they thought Alice Cooper would do, and they watch, like, Water Party, you know? Because um, they come backstage, and Aerosmith just kind of disappears, and you're like, oh, all right. Well, they have backstage yeah. passes, but apparently there's layers of backstage. Oh, yeah. There's and they a can't get into the final layer for reasons that are never quite explained. That's true, though. I mean, it, it it's all about who you know and who gets in. And, you know, maybe the especially sexy groupie can get into the inner sync right. or something. I and, also think it was funny because it kind of like, like, as a kid, I was like, oh, backstage passes must not be all that. You know what I mean? I was like, I'm going to get stuck with these two nerds. <laughs> Well, now it's not just backstage passage. You can buy like five different kinds, and they can be, you know, over a thousand a piece if you want a photo in one minute to talk oh, yeah. with the, the people. Kind of like what they do at the comic conventions with the photographs. Speaking right. of the whole industry, uh, Thrasher. What did you think about? Um, you've been to London before, right? What did uh, you yeah, think? I, yes, that yeah. I have. So, so a big part of the movie is uh, they gotta get this uh, roadie guy to to help them get the big <laughs> groups to to Wainstock. And what do you think about when they go? London. That's one of my favorite set pieces because they cut to that awful prop plane with the voiceover. <laughs> I can't believe they paid to send us to England to film. And then it's just body doubles that clearly are not them. They have completely different heights and like mm. they, they keep getting these tortured positions where you can never <laughs> see their face. I love all that B-roll stuff. And then of course oh, yeah. then it's the real actors when it's at an apartment. But when it's an I interior. I re yeah, when it's an interior. So I, I, I love that bit. That's just one of those. I I, I love movies that, that admit that they are movies. And I think that's part of the reason right. why I, I like that bit with the body doubles and talking about pay, paying money to film in London. <laughs> and like even their voices are a little different, too, because you can just hear how like stilted the like, you know, you can the, the uh, like dove dialogue is. Yeah, they're, they're like just reading like off of the script in front of them. Right, and that line, like, what a shitty circus. <laughs> it always cracked me up. <laughs> but, but of course, um, the roadie, like, I like. It's just, it, it, it's it's a character that would have been played by Russell Brand today, probably. But, right. And I just, I just love that all of his stories sort of end with him essentially confessing to a murder while trying oh, yeah. to, like, while trying to do something for rock concert. Oh, that's <laughs> what I think is so funny. Oh, sorry, you go. Uh, I was saying, right, Ralph Brown has been in a few stuff we've talked about on the show before. He had a, a small part as Aaron in Alien 3, but more importantly, he's Rick O'Lee, a pilot in The Phantom Menace, who kind of helps uh, Amidala and stuff get off Naboo um, in that movie. That's right. But um, namely, the biggest reference, though, is back to... Um character he played in bruce robinson's uh with nail and i a great cult film from the from the uh 80s where his um where uh ralph brown plays like a pill pusher drug dealer type guy and he's got the exact same voice as he has here see <laughs> and um but it's funny because when they go into the apartment because we recently rewatched with nail and i it was it was this movie I always used to watch when I was younger. Like the interior of his apartment is just like the set of Withnell and I. It's like the same <laughs> kitchen. I'm like, oh my god, it's just like Bruce Robinson's movie. So I thought that was a good bit of business. And just like again, the vocal inflections are like identical. He's basically playing the same character, Danny, as with the guy in Withnell and I. Well, the other thing that's so great is like when they find him, they they're for a second terrified because he's he's asleep, hanging upside down from his ceiling. <laughs> And he was like, this might look ridiculous, but sleeping like this will add 10 years to your life. And then he immediately lights up a cigarette. Oh, <laughs> takes yeah. a deep drag off of it. What did he say about Keith Richards? Like, Keith Richards showed me that's why regular chemicals can't kill him. <laughs> yeah. He can't be killed by conventional weapons. Right. <laughs> well, that's the other thing I think that's so funny is that, like, all of his stories end with, like, you know, him basically copping to murder. And it's something I kind of find funny in, like, rock history. It's like, 
you know, people talk about like the Grateful Dead and stuff, and it's like, oh, peace and love and all this other stuff. But, like, they were actually pretty sketchy dudes. They rolled around with like the Hell's Angels. They like, did a lot of speed and heroin. Like, well, that's the thing. Know, it's like, like, you know, those days are behind me. It's not as if the Grateful Dead are still touring. Well, <laughs> yeah. actually, yeah. So. And it's like right at that time when like the hippie culture kind of had like a resurgence in America, mm-hmm. like the mid '90s, like you know, with the uh, Woodstock '94 and yeah, you know, tight IT shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The and not, and, and, and not, not too long after this movie, Forrest Gump came out, which was nothing but oh, yeah. a, a messy love letter to the oh, yeah. hippies. I, I will call that movie, Forrest Gump, beautiful crap. Like, I, it, I think it is a good movie. I do enjoy watching it. But if it has a moral, it is the most fucked up moral you can take away from the 20th century. The, the yeah. book is a lot different. And the, they did a book that's a sequel called Gump and Company that's extremely odd. Weird, yeah. That makes reference always... to the movie getting all the details wrong. Uh... <laughs> that's hilarious. And I always think of uh, Cecil be Demented with uh, Gump again. Oh, Off his sure. crab cake. <laughs> Gump harder. I uh, yeah. looked at Roger Ebert's old review of Wayne's World 2. He gave this three stars, and he really nails something to the character's um, appeal. He says, if Wayne and Garth ever grow confident of their success, the series will be over. Everything depends yeah. on the delighted disbelief in which they greet every new victory. And they yeah. have kind of like the childlike nature, but it's a little different than Bill and Ted, I think. Mm-hmm. They're their own things, but they're certainly similar in that they're from the same wheelhouse. Well, I think it's because yeah. Bill and Ted, to an extent, are sort of these wide-eyed innocents whose positivity <laughs> carries them forward. While as as Wayne and Garth, you know, they are these sort of directionless best best friends who are who are, I think, like just cynical enough. Right. And I think um I think Wayne's World too, I think it makes him seem almost a little bit younger with like, you know, Garth copping to basically like losing his virginity and like getting his pubes and stuff. Like they actually seem younger in this movie than they do in the first one. <laughs> which is why even though they've like moved out of their parents' basement and everything like that, um, it's, it's something about it, they just seem a little bit younger, a little bit more innocent. Um uh, but one thing I did love though was the uh, village people business. When like you can oh, you can joke, you can yeah. see it coming when you know Wade's just like the electrician and the other dudes like you know fixing the bike and everything, and then they get to the the gay the bar guy hang- the toolbox. The guy hanging out in front of the USO building <laughs> dressed as a sailor. But yeah. but yeah, like yeah, because because that's the one that's the one beat that I don't understand why they repeat is that so Christopher Walken plays this record executive who works under Mr. Sharp, who you know we remember yeah. from the climax of the first film, and for some reason Wayne's arc with Cassandra this movie is a complete retread of the arc from the first movie because what's right. what's the conflict? She's working with an executive, and that executive mm-hmm. is trying to seduce her, and 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 Wayne is suspicious and jealous, and like that's. Right. Like that's that's the only difference is he's suspicious and jealous from the start rather than becoming suspicious and jealous right. halfway through. But yeah, there's a whole bit where like he wants to eavesdrop on a lunch meeting she's having with Christopher Walken, so he's dressed as a construction worker up at a telephone pole. <laughs> and when he gets caught, and everyone else is in disguise, I love Wayne as the police officer. He looks so out of place in the uniform. <laughs> but yeah, they get spotted, so they run. And they get backed into a corner and they realize they're in this gay bar called The Toolbox. So they do a whole YMCA musical number and it is a delight. It is so delightful. And I love Mike Myers' A. He just kind of goes like this, like, you know, <laughs> YMCA. He's just like... <laughs> so so listeners, uh, what Alex did is he made a little pyramid with his hands and kind of put them like right on his forehead. Right. Which is taping Mike Myers' uh, uh, YMCAA. <laughs> well, then in the middle in the middle of it, how, like, there's one village person they don't have, uh, the Native American, and then the weird naked Indian shows up. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that it's kind of, like, absurd. Like, some people see him, some don't. <laughs> yeah. Right. And uh, the weird naked Indian is played by Larry Sellers. He's uh, actually a, a Native American, and he, he's played roles in several movies. And I, I just like how... He plays it kind of completely flat. Like it just worked. Like his line delivery is kind of solemn, but it, it's winking a little bit at the camera. It's not over yeah. the top. It's not goofy. They don't. I mean, they call him naked. He's not technically naked. They get a lot of mileage out of those butt shots. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah he's got a he's got a loincloth in the front, but it's party in the back. 
Oh yeah, yeah, it definitely um, goes from thong to loin. Later on in um, some more of those dream sequences, Tim Meadows does a pretty good Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, I was a bit worried I, that was Billy Crystal for a second. Oh, that was oh, so great. I That's... fell over laughing because I didn't get all like the Kennedy references back then. So like that one, yeah. I just I I lost my shit. I, I fell over laughing. I thought it was so hilarious. Well, that's I... the funny thing is like all this stuff they 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 keep hitting this sort of Jim Morrison Vision Quest thing so often. I'm I'm wondering, do you think anyone watching this today is aware that that whole thing is a reference to the Doors biopic that Oliver Stone? No, did? I don't think so. I mean, I don't. That movie doesn't really get talked about a whole lot. Um, like if you, you bring it up to people our age, I think, yeah, but like, I think if you talk to anyone under 30, I don't think they're really going to talk about it, unless they're hardcore Doors fans, but yeah, even then, I don't know. Um, but <laughs> true, I mean, it's just one of those things where, um, Oliver Stone in, in the eighties and nineties in particular just did, you know, had a big run of huge hits mm-hmm. and he still does movies now, but he's not. In the mainstream, oh, yeah. I mean, you, he, he just came out with a memoir uh, that, lo- that looks pretty cool. But... Called oh, yeah. Stoned Again. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to see him stoned, watch some of his appearances on Celebrity Jeopardy, where he just totally like, oh, yeah. laughs around. Uh, uh, Drew Barrymore is in here, I forgot that. As, as yeah, Drew I forgot I have cool. Yeah, a lot of yeah. cameos. Hello, my name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm inviting you to listen to Our Three Cents, a weekly podcast where myself and two of my very best gaming chums are counting down our top 100 favourite video games of all time. For all the episodes and information, check out our website, www.ourthreecents.co.uk. Hi, we're Ellen, Stephen, and Mark, hosts of Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. Topics include programming, design, tools, and more. We also do interviews and one-hour game jams. Listen to Nice Games Club wherever you get to your wherever you get to your podcast. You get there, <laughs> or at nicegames.club. A lot of yeah, cameos, of course, because the first movie was a big hit. And Simpsons Connection. How can we forget Handsome Dan? Oh, oh that was yeah. Yeah, really early in the film, they like they they reveal like their favorite DJs, this guy called Handsome Dan, who just broadcasts whenever, and he's clearly like the big local DJ. I'm not sure if this happens anymore, but like the big local DJ uh, used to be a whole thing. Like in my in my oh, hometown, yeah. we had Paul Chagru and Mike Arlo were like the two DJs everybody could name. Um, what kind of a station well, did they do? Uh, well, uh, Paul Paul Chagru kind of worked for, on for every station. He moved around a lot. He did some public radio. He did like some he did uh, some modern rock and classic rock stations. Mike Arlo was pretty much just classic rock. Although what was interesting is that Paul Chagru would go on to host a national music show for uh, a national syndicated music show that showed up on a lot of radio stations across the country. Strangely enough, he followed me to college. Because when I went to college in Savannah, Georgia, that big show got picked up by a local station in Savannah, Georgia. But then Mike Arlo went on to ruin some marriages. <laughs> I remember voice... it kind of reminds me of like, sorry. Oh, I was just saying the voice that Harry Shearer uses is the same as the Kent Brockman voice on The Simpsons. Oh, yeah. And it oh, totally that's... reminds me of like, like a Casey Kasem thing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the other thing. Like, I... got Wayne here for Wayne's Duck. That's the other thing I love is that his sidekick is this guy called Mr. Scream, who all he does is go, yeah, into the microphone. <laughs> and I love it when they go to the radio station to do their promo and they see this guy, who this gorgeous guy who they just assume is Handsome Dan. No, that's Mr. Scream. Handsome Dan is, <laughs> is ugly as hell. And I'm a bit surprised Harry Shearer did this. He has some bad blood with SNL. He appeared on the show oh, yeah. in, in two different years with time in between them he was on season five i believe and then later uh in the the late 80s oh it was a very interesting season where they got a lot of all-star people in it like billy crystal and whatever had a really good solid season but harry shearer just left after a few episodes because it wasn't really what he would wanted to do Uh, but anyhow you know because we're michael's connection I'm a bit surprised he did this, but a gig is a gig, and he's good. I, I kind of wish he would have done something more at the end of the movie. They would have mm. they would have brought him in because they do the yeah. setup for the handsome Dan just for this gag in the middle, and it feels like you want something to to finish that off. Uh, I love though that he's just this is like their big like you know PR moment. He's just kind of a wanker, just like uh huh, yep. Oh, oh, that's uh-huh. great. 
I love that. <laughs> oh yeah, because he could say anything and you'd agree uh, with it. Sure. Uh-huh. Sure and, thing. <laughs> yeah, and if, if you listen to any radio thing, that's how they do interviews because uh, we, uh, well, you and I have done some radio and stuff, and like uh, podcasting is true to a lesser degree, but you don't want dead air. So oh, even no. saying something like, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, is important. Oh, of course. Because yeah. two seconds of silence on the radio feels like an eternity. <laughs> it's an eternity, yeah. And, you know, he's putting, like, the different 8-track tapes in and loading. Like, he's, he's actively doing stuff. You get the idea that this is a busy guy. And um, he has that perfect radio voice. And then you get that it's, like, maybe an like, ironic thing. That, like, Handsome Dan's, like, kind of goofy looking. And I love that they make him just goofy enough. Like, he's got, like, a weird tan. And his, like, hair is really curly. Bad perm, you know? <laughs> he's like, ah, Handsome Dan, you know? <laughs> oh, another, other, like, big names. Kevin Pollock. Oh, yes. Yeah. Who doesn't meet Christopher Walken and doesn't impersonate him in this movie? Correct. Yeah, he's in a, a brief scene when they're filling out the, uh, the county paperwork to put on Wayne Stock, and they're like, "Well, it's five hundred dollars." Oh, sure, we have the form filled out. <laughs> uh, and what's weird and, is he uh, his character's name is Jerry Siegel. Do you think that is an intent, a deliberate reference to the co-creator of Superman? Maybe. Yeah. No. Or just a coincidence. I think it's a coincidence. You never know. Um, to yeah. this day, though, I do always say across the T's and dot the lowercase J's. And I always wonder see who's going to pick up on it. And nobody does. <laughs> Mike Myers later reused this, jag- this gag about the guy's eye. Uh, where he's trying not to say it. And he'll they keep saying things like eye and, and to point it right. out. In um, Austin Powers 3 with the mole joke. Remember oh, yeah. Oh, right. Molly, molly, molly. It's a similar yeah. kind of gag. Uh, I mean, overall, this movie is okay. It gets better when they do the Wayne stock stuff at the end. It just and the uh, the kung fu fight. Oh, oh! How could we forget the kung fu fight? Yes. <laughs> oh, that, that yeah. With the uh, the great actor James Hong. Thank you, James Hong. Yeah. Who's, who, who's we, been in just about everything? We need to get that man a a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Yeah. If anyone deserves yeah. it, James Hong deserves it. Yeah, he he did. Uh, it, he, I mean, he's been he's doing been stuff everything. for not only everything. He's been doing stuff for Asian actors yeah. for for years, having the theater companies and, and all these things, uh, doing plays and stuff. And and he he was saying that when um, oh now I can't think of the name of that movie. Um, what was the movie that made all the money with the all Asian cast, where it's, they go to Thailand? Oh, crazy Rich Asians. Yes, Crazy Rich Asians. Oh, yeah. Was the first uh, movie that made you know tons of money in America with the all Asian cast since like '95's The Joy Luck Club, mm-hmm. and he said he's like he can't believe it took that long for that to happen again. Right, and um, he's got a great career because he would do you know he, he he would do a lot of you know comedies and like you know appear as the random you know Asian villain guy, but he would also you know do Chinatown. He'd also do you know. Blade Runner, and he's got a like a lot of prestige stuff and just silly stuff and some cool Hong Kong stuff with like Hero and stuff like that. He's also like he's also the villain. Like I, I this is gonna sound so silly, but I do truly love this show. He is the villain monkey in Super Robot Monkey Team Hyperforce Go. <laughs> and like and like he doesn't do like a cartoon voice. He does the creepiest possible version of his own voice. Which, compared to the goofiness of the rest of the show, really makes his villains stand out in sharp relief. Yeah. But yeah, he plays Cassandra's father, and that's one of the things that turns out Cassandra's uh, green card is going to expire. And, you know, so, like, if she doesn't get the big album cut, like, she won't get an extension on the green card. And the only other alternative is is marriage. So, of course, you know, is she going to get serious with Wayne? Or is uh, is Christopher Walken, as Bobby Kahn, going to, like, use the prospect of marriage to manipulate her? But I love it when he when Wayne finally meets her father and they're speaking in Cantonese uh, and they get into an argument. You know, in our culture, sir, uh, women can make their own decisions. Do not speak to me in such with such disrespect. And it gets and like it gets so heated. It's like, well, very well. I have no choice but to fight you. It's like, very well. But if we are going to fight, let us ditch the subtitles and instead be dubbed. And suddenly they're dubbed like a Hong Kong action movie. And he goes, very well, if that is your custom, this is how we should speak. <laughs> and then they get, they and they have this huge elaborate 
classic kung fu fight it even has the same kind of cuts and zooms in it it's so well observed when i saw this in the theaters this scene had like the most sustained laughter of any movie i'd seen up to that point oh without a doubt um and like they do it just they do it just right i mean like they even get like the dubbing sound like they even get like the like the like the blows land and like the dubbing even on that it's a little off you know they do some wire uh, foo oh yeah and like what um he's like you're quick with the mouth but are you fast with the sword like you don't even they don't even that doesn't even match anything his mouth's closed that whole time <laughs> like it's perfectly bad enough to be like a like a dubbed like chop sake flick it's so, terrific so part of me wonders is there an alternate cut of this scene where like we see what they're actually saying when their mouths move like are those just completely random mouth movements or are they saying right. other stuff that they know no one will ever hear I think, like, it looks like Mike Myers is saying the lines just off time. Like, especially when it does the call waiting thing, which I thought was hilarious. Hang on, <laughs> I have call waiting. Holding <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. on, I have another call on the line. <laughs> Even the sound effects they use are very, the same kind of stock sound effects yeah. library. Oh, yeah. Yes, he did get his Sports Illustrated football phone. <laughs> I mean, it seems like this almost makes me wish, you, you could do a whole movie about the problems of Wayne getting married to Cassandra. Yeah, like that could be a very a stronger story, more prevalent story than the um because basically with Christopher Walken, it's like Benjamin too. You know, yeah, it's like it's, yeah. You might yeah. as well just have Rob Lowe come back. <laughs> the, the only the only difference is I could imagine uh Christopher Walken's Bobby Khan actually having someone murdered. Yeah, exactly. Oh, He's a little yeah. more dangerous and that's just the energy Walken can bring to a role. Um, they don't give Christopher Walken a lot to do, unfortunately, which mm-hmm. I think is a bit of a wasted opportunity because Christopher Walken's terrific. Um, but even though he doesn't have a lot to do in this, he's still great to watch. Um, sure. And oh, you, good. when you get to see Wayne Stuck at the end, it's kind of underwhelming. Well, it's it's in part yeah. because they do the three ending thing again. So, yeah. uh, so you know, Wayne. So it turns out Cassandra is gonna marry Bobby Khan. And, you know, Wayne tracks him down, you know, drives across country. It's this great, it's this great graduate, you know, pastiche. He does the whole, you know, Cassandra. Uh, <clears throat> they run out, get, in, get into the, I think the same bus from the graduate, go to where it they're going to do Wayne like stuff. Yeah. yeah, and they get there and it's just a barren wasteland. It's like, oh yeah, there's no bands here because you forgot to book the bands. And then like he goes to Jim Morrison in the vision, in like the spirit world. And Jim Morrison, well, at least you tried and that's what's important. But then, like, the weird naked Indian has left, so Wayne can't find his way back to Earth and, uh, like, dies an untethered soul <laughs> in the void. And there's like, oh, no, that's a horrible way to end the movie. We should do the Thelma and Louise ending. And it's just Garth and Wayne driving the Mirthmobile off a cliff, dressed as Thelma like and Louise. Garth's got, like, the perm. Wayne's got, like, the scarf and everything. Yeah, and, and as they're, like, falling, like, oh, no, this is also awful. Let's do the mega happy ending. And the yeah. mega happy ending... In the mega happy ending, he did remember to book the bands. So, like, the the Mirthmobile, a, a limousine version of the Mirthmobile shows yeah. up, and Aerosmith and all these other bands get out. And, you know, everybody's having a big party on stage. It's great. Yeah. It's a stretched pacer. I love it. Um, yeah, I was kind of surprised that they didn't get some more cameos. Um, I mean, obviously, Aerosmith's there. That's great. But it would have been cool if, like, you'd seen Nettie Vetter or something come out or... Because remember in the record studio, they're like, who'd you book? He's like, uh, Pearl Jam. Well, <laughs> remember, Rip, Rip Taylor is there. Oh, Rip Taylor is there. and um, That is something I love when he's like bluffing what acts are going to be at the show. And he's just looking at different things and he sees albums and posters. But then he sees Rip Taylor in the recording booth and says, Rip Taylor will be there. Also, an and... old man fashioning a canoe out of a log. But yeah, I love that Rip. I love that this movie introduced Rip Taylor to a whole other generation of fans. This was the Rip Taylor Renaissance because, of course, he had just done uh, Ducktales, the movie Treasure of the Lost Lamp. Ah, that's right. Mm. And there, it cuts to him like throwing like the freaking confetti on everyone in the crowd, <laughs> just prancing around. And the crowd loves it. Oh yeah, it's awesome. But yeah, and I kind of love like the you know the 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 sort of the moral <laughs> where like you know the the Jim Morrison's you know spirit shows up and and he says you know he's, he's a, this wasn't this was never about you putting on a concert Wayne this is about you learning that adulthood is about taking responsibilities but still finding ways to have fun it was oh yeah it's like when I would do all my homework on Friday night once I got home from school so the whole weekend I could just party it's like no Wayne the way I said it is better yeah I love that he says that. 
<laughs> and so, you know, that's our big happy ending. We get some more music. There's another mid-credit sequence where it's it's the concert field after the concert and there's litter everywhere and the weird naked Indian shows up and does that single tear. But then Wayne and Garth show up and goes, yeah, this does suck, but don't worry, we're going to clean it up. And they just start picking up litter. <laughs> I love that little bit. a really old commercial. Yeah, there was an anti there was an anti littering and pollution commercial where yeah, this like a car is driving down the highway and like throws a, a aluminum can out and then we see all this trash on the side of the highway. These two sandaled feet show up, camera pans up, and it's this Native American guy crying. Turns out that actor was Italian. Yeah, oh, Iron yeah. Nice Cody. Yeah, yeah and he, he had played... a pretty good career playing an Indian, playing a Native dude. Yeah. yeah. But in this in this movie, we actually got a Native American guy. Yeah. Yeah. Way no, to go, Wade's World Two. Yeah. The only, uh, no, that's not true. I was going to say the only person of color in the film, but that's not true. You have Tia Carrere, who has a lesser role than mm. the first one. But yeah. Um, Lance War 2, I give it a sequel no. This isn't one of my favorites. It it has some things that work. The Kung Fu scene is great. It just seems a bit all over the place. It is not as funny as the first movie. Um, the Garth material is, is strong. Yeah, if you saw the first one, you might as well watch the second, I guess. But yeah, sequel no. I'm going to give it a sequel, yes, because while this while this movie does a lot of things I like, a few things that I think are kind of lazy, like the reusing the whole Cassandra plot, um, overall, I was still very entertained. I had a lot of laugh-out-loud moments. I appreciated the whole Jurassic Park parody, probably the first Jurassic Park parody on film. Um, so, like, I was, I was, for all its flaws, I was just about as entertained as the first film, and, you know, also love Charlton Heston replacing another actor in the middle of a scene. I, I, I as much of a right wing wing crank as he was at this point in his career. God damn, that man could act. And I love that he was involved in this. So I'm going to give it a sequel. Yes, I would be willing to take this series for a third spin just because I because you could you could do better. You could do but you could do a lot worse than what mm. we got. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say sequel, yes. It's like you said, it's um it feels dangerously close to, to going off the rails. Um, and there's a lot of familiarity and the energy isn't there, but there's so many good bits and there's just enough to hold those hilarious bits together and um I mean it's uh, some pretty inspired uh, tomfoolery with the uh the the Kung Fu fight and Wayne Stock and the the film noir the neo noir subplot with Kim Basinger and everything. Um, and they develop the characters. Uh, I think they do a pretty good job developing the characters, and there's some um, some pretty inspired cameos and goofy stuff. Uh, it, it's Again, it's not perfect. It's it's a little too familiar. And you can kind of tell it was done on the fly, but it's still an enjoyable movie that I've laughed out loud at, at quite a few times. <laughs> cool. So uh, now we're going to do pitch a sequel, speaking of which what you're saying, Thrasher. I mean, I am surprised we have not seen a Wayne's World 3 by now. There's been rumors of it for a bit. There's been rumors of Austin Powers 4 for even longer. They, they revive the characters every now and then, either for like mm -hmm. a weird appearance on an award show or as like a special intro for SNL. Yeah. But um, with this uh, Wayne's World, what I would do is probably have it be about Wayne and Garth's kids. Maybe Wayne doesn't have kids. Garth does, and Cassandra is pressuring Wayne to have kids, and you would kind of have a lot of surreal sequences about that. Point of order: Who is the mother of Garth's children? That's going to be part of the plot. We're not <laughs> sure. Garth has become such a ladies' man and so emboldened, and I think he always treats the women respectfully, like he, you would assume. But he, he is, it's kind of a mystery, right, to find who's the baby daddy. That's kind of the central conceit. Who's the of baby the film. mama? Baby mamas, excuse me, Garth is a baby daddy. And uh, at the end, you know, I think Wayne comes to a realization that he does want children, but then Cassandra le leaves and it's too late. And it would be called uh, Wayne's World 3. I, I want to give it a subtitle because I think that always makes it good. Um, <laughs> Wayne's World 3 Party Time with a question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I'm going to do uh, my Wayne's World uh, three is going to be Wayne's World tour, and so the whole the whole premise behind this one is that Wayne and Cassandra are in fact now married, and 
they want to do like they wanted to do a big honeymoon but at the same time she her albums come out she's become a big hit and so she's going to do like a world tour and so we said, well no problem i'll just go with you and the world tour can be our can be our honeymoon so you know her schedule's really tight she wants to spend all of her free time with with uh, wayne you know wayne loves traveling the world meeting new people but of course because wayne and garth are a match set Garth is following them is on this world tour too. And like, that's kind of what the emotional conflict comes from, you know, is, you know, like, well, well, Wayne, do you want to spend our honeymoon with me or with Garth? Because he kind of keeps like intruding on what would otherwise be these, these yeah. intimate moments. And that's really the arc is it's, that it's both, it's about Cassandra learning to respect Wayne's friendship with Garth, but it's also about Garth learning, you know, to make time for all the important people in his life, you know, put setting up healthy boundaries. Uh, and the, the the joke will be that Garth has nothing to learn. He's completely guileless. He's totally cool with when Wayne says, I got to spend time with my wife and not you. He's like, okay, I'll hang out over here. And he's like going to museums and like flying Da Vinci flying machines when they go through Italy. But because we have to end on a big set piece, um, it'll turn out that uh, that Ger Germany had so much fun reuniting after the Berlin Wall fell that they allowed themselves to be invaded by Russia again and the Berlin Wall was put back up. So it ends in a concert on the Berlin Wall where the power of Cassandra's rocking and also Garth's expertise with demolitions allows her to break down the Berlin Wall and reunite East and West Germany. Yes. Would there be a supporting role of like some German family or something to kind of give some context to it? Uh, yes, I think I think so, and like they'd probably all be very very dark and depressed. You know, all is misery, all is misery. Or it would be uh, Mike Myers playing a dual role as as Dieter from SNL. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, you want to do a Dieter a Dieter cameo? Like they'll go they'll use digital effects so that Wayne can go on sprockets, yeah. which almost had a movie. Yes. Oh my goodness. Mike Myers got great. sued because they didn't make it. Yeah, as I, as I recall, uh, Bob Odenkirk actually did a pass on the, sp the sp Sprocket script. Aw. Like, what could have been? <laughs> so, Alex, what's your, what's your sequel? Oh, so it turns out after after the success of uh, Wayne Stock and um, the networking uh, they got from hooking up with Del Preston, Wayne's role, the show, gets picked up by the BBC. So Wayne and Garth actually relocate to um, to Britain, to London, to uh, film Wayne's World. And um, with Cassandra, she has a dual citizenship because uh, Hong Kong's still a crown colony. Um, and it turns out that Del Preston's actually been a sleeper agent for MI6. And that <laughs> Margaret Thatcher and the British conservative elite have brainwashed Ozzy Osbourne to, uh, to hypnotize the headbangers of uh, London and America to be bland. And the brown M&Ms are actually his trigger, like a Manchurian candidate type thing. So together, <laughs> Wayne, Garth, and, and, uh, and Cassandra have to, have to band together along with Del Preston to uh, take down Margaret Thatcher's um, brainwashing rock and roll campaign and save Ozzy and, uh, you know, and, and, and reunite rock and roll as we know it. And it would be called uh, Wayne's Rolled uh, Road Trip to the United Kingdom. Uh, so here's what you do. Like whenever they go outside – the film has to get really grainy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also, I kind of imagine, like, the BBC logo, like, now, at five o'clock, Wayne's World. I'm Michael Parkinson. Here's to introduce Wayne and Garth. Party on Wayne and party on Garth. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a question for you. In this movie, do you think they're still doing their show sponsored by Noah's Arcade and they're, and they're getting paid Ooh. for it or what? Because we never know. We never find out where they where they get their money to, to live in the abandoned doll factory, unless it is quite well and truly abandoned and they just kind of moved in. They're just squatting. I think, I think with all the, the fracas from uh, Noah's Arcade and, and so forth at the end of the first one, maybe they got some kind of a, a large cash settlement they could use to, <laughs> there we go. to get their own place. That's my theory, anyway. Um, the SEC took down um, the Benjamin, and they yeah. paid him out dividends. <laughs> right. Um, on to what you're watching. Yeah. Uh, I saw something that was a sequel to a movie I didn't really like, and surprise, surprise, it was a sequel that I thought was better than the original, although I still didn't like it that much. Uh, this was a cartoon that was kind of one of the big films uh, released first during the COVID-19 pandemic, so it got to have that. Um, you know, digital rental priced at $20 money 
although now you can see it on Hulu in the States um, if you have a subscription. I'm talking about Trolls World Tour. Oh. The, I, I don't like that they do not look like the original Trolls. They all look too pretty to be Trolls because <laughs> uh, it is based on the, the toy line. Uh, but I think the plot of it is kind of inspired in that the first one, you know, it was kind of a jukebox musical. It was all pop music. And then in this one, you find out that's just a small part of the Trolls kingdom. There's like country troll land and classical music land and techno land and whatever. And there's a bad guy that's the heavy metal land and they want to collect all the strings and the music to make everyone rock zombies. Um, like the plot isn't great, but you have different covers of different styles of music, which I think is kind of interesting. So... I don't like it really, um, but it's slightly better than the original. So if you want to hear covers of classics with a lot of auto-tuned vocals, have at it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't well, even I, know there was one. Is it that, that was one of the, like the last big movies released in theaters before the Dark Times began? Right. Uh, it, it came yeah. out after the Dark Times. Oh wow. So it was oh, one of the it was one of the first big ones where it was like twenty dollars to rent, and you were having people they hadn't really figured out a good system for that yet, and you were having these families complain. I've spent a hundred dollars on trolls this week because little Jimmy wants to watch it over and over again. I have to work. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Which I'm sure the studios like, right? It's all more money. Um, Alex, what have you been watching? Um, so I found, this is uh, pretty off the wall, but this pretty wild movie by um, Japanese cult director Toshiaki Toyoda called The Day of Destruction. It had just been released like at the end of July, and it's, uh, I think it's got the credit as being the first official like COVID horror film. Mm. Um, and it's about that, like it takes place so seven years ago, um, these uh, miners in Japan excavated this kind of like Lovecraftian-esque like amoebic gross monster thing and from it sprung this virus you know in a present day Japan that's affecting everyone where everyone has to wear face masks and it's you know spells out impending doom and then um, it turns out that uh, this uh, Shigundo um, priest or um, uh, you know spiritual dude um, tried to, uh, you know, uh, combat it by, you know, worship and absentation and burying himself in like a chest. And he comes out and it's just this really heady, swirly, um, freaky horror film. Um, and it's like a, it's also treated as like a mental illness too. And this guy's hell bent on like exercising it from the world through, you know, through his belief and stuff. And it's a very like, very desperate, head trippy, um, kind of like punk rock horror film uh, called the. Yeah, The Day of Destruction. It's a really far-out flick, but I would check it out. It's pretty... It's not just topical, but it's also pretty cool, like, Lovecraftian horror exercise that's got, like, this little, like, punk rock attitude towards it. Where, like, humanity is the illness, man, you know. You're seeing a lot of Lovecraftian stuff um, lately, and I think with the success of HBO's Lovecraft Country, you're only going to see more. Plus, oh, it's yeah, definitely. Domain, isn't it? Do I have that uh, right, Thrasher? Yeah, yes. the, its its copyright was was ambiguous, but not properly maintained. So yes, all of Lovecraft's work is now in the public domain. Although, a number of just to avoid even a lawsuit that no one could enforce, a lot of people do sort of as a courtesy get permission from Ark from what's left of Arkham House Publishing before doing things Lovecraft related. And I think it also makes people feel a little bit better about his wanton racism of <laughs> of the time. <laughs> like, well, the state isn't making any money from our adaptation, so okay. <laughs> I kind of wish What's... there was a documentary focusing on the racist aspect of uh, Lovecraft. Yeah, and the time he was too. quite a bigot. Yeah, and um, quite a misogynist as well. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, and friends with uh, Robert E. Howard, creator of Conan. Uh... Who used some Cthulhu mythos stuff in his stories? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. There was a lot of overlap there. Thrasher, mm -hmm. what have you been watching? So I watched another sequel, uh, and I just recently discovered that this is a sequel to two different unrelated movies at once. Um, but I watched uh, Doctor Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs, which is a sequel oh. to both the Vincent Price movie, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Doctor Goldfoot I, and the Bikini oh, Machine. Goldfoot. 
and also a sequel to the Italian spy comedy Two Two Mafiosi Against Gold Ginger. <laughs> Did Mario Bava direct that? I know yes, it had something direct- to do with one of those. Yeah. It's directed by Mario Bava, and I don't and I don't know if there was a horrible accident or if they just didn't bother to record sound on set. But all of, all the dialogue across the board is is recorded ADR, so it's 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 Vincent Price lip syncing to himself, and it creates this weird quality to it, because like everybody is trying to like match their cadence on set like weeks after the fact. That's uh, too funny. But yeah, and like the whole the whole reason it's a sequel to this other movie, there are these two Italian comedians. Uh, uh, Franco, uh, Franco Franchi and uh, Ciccio Igracia, who apparently they did like over a hundred and film a hundred different films together. They're like sort of the Abbott and Costello of Italy, oh. and they did they did this spy movie, you know, the two mafiosi against Gold Ginger. That AIP, the people who produced the Doctor Goldfoot movies, sure. had the American rights to. They like released a dubbed version. So, and I guess that just did well enough. They decided to roll that into their Goldfoot sequel. But yeah, in, in Doctor Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs, the villainous—it's they're both Goldfoot movies. They are effectively James Bond comedies, but told from the villain's perspective. Mm. In this sequel, uh, Doctor Goldfoot is making android women who are living bombs and sending them out to seduce and then explode NATO generals because <laughs> Doctor Goldfoot is trying to trick uh, NATO and Russia into engaging in a nuclear war that is so devastating it will allow him and some other force operating out of China, they never quite identify it, to sort of take over the world. There's even a great scene where he's on the phone to his allies in China saying, now remember, you get these countries, uh, I get North America and South America, and then mainland Europe, well, share and share alike. <laughs> That's terrific. I need to watch this. I was—I never knew how to approach the series because I wasn't sure kind of where it started because I know, like you said, the offshoots from... Uh, different source material, but it's actually fortunate that they were still able to get Vincent Price to do the post dubbing because that would happen other Bava flicks like The Whip and the Body. Never, they were never able to get Chris Lee to dub his voice on the actual movie. So we have a Christopher Lee performance, but you don't have Christopher Lee. Like it's 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 really frustrating. And it's so it's it's so weird because like it like the, the the comedy here is all over the place and it has low real low lows but sometimes reaches these transcendent heights like at the right before the climax of the movie there's a hot air balloon chase and inexplicably it becomes a silent movie with silent movie <laughs> piano playing and when the characters speak you don't hear them you get title cards that oh my, oh my goodness that's great and, then there's also this great bit when they think they found Dr. Goldfoot's compound and they go to investigate. Uh, Franco and Ciccio show up, but they show up armed. What they are armed with is an atomic bomb so big it takes two of them to carry it. But the atomic bomb has a sniper scope strapped to the back and a bayonet strapped to the front. <laughs> That's terrific. terrific. Such delightful overkill. I, I did not realize I didn't realize Vincent Price did uh, two movies that had sequels with Doctor in the title. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Doctor Love those movies. So you have the sequel oh, yeah. scene brought up, which is with the one-eyed guy. Who wants to play Wayne? Who wants to play Garth? And who wants to play Jerry Siegel? I would love to do Siegel. I can do Garth. I, do Garth. I am also hearing distortions right here. But we're going to keep recording because we're about finished. Okay. Um, I, I, I missed that. I was looking at the chat. Who's doing what part? I'm Siegel. I can do Garth. Okay, I'll do Wayne. Um, let's go. So, yeah, so this is when they're meeting with Siegel at the parks department, and he's just taken off his glasses, revealing his one uh, one white eye. Uh, what? Is something wrong? What do you mean? It's my eye, isn't it? Oh, why would we want to look at your eye? Is there something wrong with your weird eye? There's nothing wrong with my eye. This one just has no pigment. I'm what you would call a partial ocular albino, but I'm fine with it. I have perfect 2020 vision with both eyes. So you're serious about putting on a rock concert? Are you kidding? I give my right eye. You realize there are certain jurisdictions you'll need to follow. 
I'd like to think I have an eye for details. I'm kind of surprised this ex- excerpt doesn't continue because there's so much material they get out of that, including the immortal cross the T's and dot the lowercase J's. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So next week we'll be starting a series of films that I believe they're Chinese. Is that right, Alex? Yeah, they're from uh, yeah Chinese Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, the election duology, election and triad election. Hmm. Or is it election hmm. triad? I can't remember. It's a triad election, but it was originally election two. For some reason, they thought it would be a good idea to call it triad election in America, as if that would be less confusing. But and hey, yeah. elections, topical. Yeah, and, uh, yeah right. And they're playing on a Tubi, T-U-B-I, yes. so which is a pretty good service for watching movies for free online. Um, Especially obscure like, ones. Yeah, yeah, it's legit. Definitely. It has commercials. It has a lot of weird themes in their category. I'd also recommend Pluto TV. It has some good stuff as well. Yeah, they've got a lot of cool stuff. Anyhow, so. Uh, Sequel cast two. I'm uh, at M A T W B T. Uh, leave the show a review on the Apple Podcast app. Um, Thrasher. Yep, you can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Also, got some new stuff to promote. Uh, as of this recording, uh, I am currently running uh, my second Kickstarter. Uh, it's an enamel pin Kickstarter. It is the Puppy Dragon enamel pin Kickstarter. Uh, a year ago, I had drawn this goofy character of a baby dragon with the enthusiasm of an out-of-control puppy just to make some people I was at the convention with laugh. And it just kind of grew from there. So I am now releasing a series of uh, of enamel pins based on this character. You go to Puppy Dragon Enamel Pin Kickstarter. As of this recording, uh, we are halfway to our funding goal, and it's only our second day. So uh, that at this rate, we are going to hit some stretch goals in a few days' time. So definitely, if you want to support me, see some of my work, uh, definitely check out the Puppy Dragon Enamel Pin Kickstarter. And Alex. Uh, you can follow me on the Twitter at CrabNebula1914 and drop by uh, my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project, where there's trailer commentaries, essay films, and other um, strange, weird parody videos and uh, trailer commentaries. So, The Trailer right. Project. Check it out. A puppy dragon is one word. Also, our theme music is written and performed by Mark with a C. Listen to him at markwithac.com. Very nice. This is Matt. This is Thrasher. This is Alex. Zane. Ha <laughs> ha! Oh, Rip Taylor. Oh. Uh huh. Uh huh. You're just or a freak I'll... with a microphone. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Great. We could say anything about you, and you'd agree with us. Uh huh. Yep. Don't